Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, you're listening to the latest episode of Talking France. This week, we'll be heading into rural France. Now, listeners will no doubt know that you absolutely need a car if you're in the French countryside. But can President Emmanuel Macron convince drivers to go electric with his new offer? And what about public transport? Does the French government have any plans to improve trains and buses for those living in La France Profonde? We'll get the latest on the fuel blockades and look at whether this week's nationwide strike in France would give Macron and his ministers reason to be jittery about the months ahead. Will it really herald an uprising like May 1968, as some have suggested? And what's been happening with Notre Dame Cathedral? Will it really be restored in time for the Paris Olympics? We'll get the latest. We'll also bring you some French films you really should find time to watch and discover why everyone has been talking about stretchy mashed potato and cheese in the Auvergne region of central France. I'm your host, Ben McPartland, and I'll be joined by editor Emma Pearson and journalist Jen Mansfield, who this week joined us on the line from the US. As usual, I'll pick the brains of our politics expert, John Litchfield. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy it. Okay, let's get straight on to what we are talking about in France this week. Well, we've been talking about this subject for a few weeks now because it's the big ongoing issue in France right now. It is, of course, strikes and protests. Emma, Tuesday saw a nationwide strike across the country. Fair amount of disruption. Protest in Paris that ended with the usual clashes between a small number of anarchist, anti-capitalist black blocs and French riot police. It all feels very familiar to us, but explain what's going on for listeners at the moment. Yeah, so this week we saw what unions are calling a grève interprofessionnelle, i.e. a strike that concerns multiple different sectors. So we saw railway workers, hauliers, teachers, crash staff and waste collectors all walk out on Tuesday. Of course, we already had strikes at oil refineries, which have been leading to widespread shortages at petrol stations. That one was a pay dispute, so that's pretty simple. Tuesday's strike was a little bit more complicated. It was called by unions as a sort of general protest against the rising cost of living and pay rises as well. But it's also partly a, an angry response to the government using this controversial strike-breaking power known as requisition to force striking oil refinery workers back to their posts. So basically the government solved one problem by using requisition but created another one because the more hardline unions are pretty angry about what they see as an attack on the right to strike, which is a, a fairly sacred article of faith here in France. Yeah, now the blockades at fuel stations are still going on. I think as we're recording, around a quarter of petrol stations in France have recorded shortages. Uh, That's an ongoing issue battle between the government and the striking refinery workers. Now, there may be more of these interprofessional strikes going forward throughout autumn and winter because basically these issues are not going away. The cost of living crisis is there to stay for a while. Just give us an idea of the disruption that that was caused on Tuesday and potentially going forward. Well, it was just a one-day strike and it actually wasn't all that well supported. Um, Only about 6% of teachers walked out, so most schools were open. Here in Paris, the metro was running as normal, just the suburban trains were slightly disrupted. And then on the, the TGV, they were pretty much normal, although there was a lot more disruption on local lines. So it really wasn't 
particularly a big strike. It was called by the CGT, which is probably France's most militant union, and although some of the other unions joined in, others didn't, notably the more moderate CFDT, which is the biggest union. So unions in France, they divide along political lines rather than sectors. So train drivers, for example, they could be represented by any one of six unions. And that means you only get real mayhem when all of the unions agree to strike on the same day. That's not happened yet, but there are calls for further actions in the weeks to come. So I guess we'll see what's announced and more crucially, whether more unions join in with this. Indeed, and whether there's going to be more protests in the weeks to come. Emma, there's been two numbers in the news this week in headlines in France. 49-3, I see it everywhere. We've talked about it before on the podcast. 49-3 is 49-3. Just remind us, what is this? Why are we talking about it again? Yeah, this is Article 49.3 of the French Constitution, and it basically allows the French government to push certain bills through the Parliament, even if the majority of MPs don't support them. The reason we're talking about it this week is the government has announced that it will use it to push through its budget, which has been blocked by the Parliament. As we said last week, I think, it's actually not that unusual for presidents to use this. Francois Hollande's government used it six times, Jacques Chirac used it eight times, but it has prompted a lot of anger against Macron, who's accused of being anti-democratic by using this. There's certainly anger among some in France at this move and I think it's unlikely to calm the overall political mood. Yes indeed and I think the best person to bring us up to date on the political mood in France is of course our politics expert John Litchfield who has written a column for us this week about the outlook going forward for potential strikes, protests, social unrest and problems for Macron. John joins me on the line now from Normandy. John, we had a strike protest on Tuesday this week. We also had a march in Paris on Sunday against the cost of living. The organisers have billed it as a new May 1968, but we're not quite there yet, are we? No, not at all. I mean, yeah, there was talk by the CGT, the the more militant, one of the more militant French trade union federations, that this was going to be what they call a convergence de lutte, which is a phrase you often hear in French uh, social politics, which means that everyone's demands would come together in one more or less general strike and the government would be forced to back down and uh, employers would be forced to increase wages and so on. The strike was reasonably effective in some parts of the railway system, but most mainline trains were unaffected. Paris Metro was unaffected. Schools and public services virtually unaffected. So it didn't come anywhere near that. The question is, is this just the beginning or is that going to be a kind of sign that they really can't push things as far as they want to? I mean, the the, the reality is that this was called by two or three of the more militant trade union federations, the biggest trade union federation, the CFDT, which is always more moderate and seeks to negotiate before pushing things to this kind of a confrontation, refused to take part and, in fact, dismissed it as pointless on the grounds that you can't have a convergence dilute because, in the end, it comes down to individual negotiations with individual companies and industries and having a kind of pressure on one doesn't necessarily bring pressure on, on another. So, uh, no, but I think this is the beginning of a, of a period of social unrest. And one of the reasons I think why there's a lot of anger out there yesterday, despite the numbers not being quite what the unions wanted, is because of this looming threat of pension reform of the pension age being put back uh, next year to 64 or eventually to 65. And I think that is what lies behind this. And it was, in a sense, partly, although not entirely, a kind of testing of muscles on both sides just to see what 
the strengths would be. But I think if you do come to a dispute over pensions, then the moderate union, moderate union federation, the CFDT would also call its troops out on the street and think that's, that, that's what they're saying. So then you would have a much, much bigger social unrest. So Macron has talked about how he wants to push through pension reform, unemployment reform. Is there anything he can do to avoid social unrest and protests and unions uniting in the months to come? What's his next move? No, I, I don't think he can. You know, I mean, if you look back at the, the 25 years or so I've been in France, nearly all the big social movements have been partly to do with pension reform in 95, a couple of years ago under Macron, also, I think, under Sarkozy. It's been this kind of sea monster of an issue in French politics for so long, a long time, and, and pensions have been changed and have been reformed. Why Macron insists on pushing with head with it now when he doesn't even have a majority in the parliament to put it through in the normal way is a good question. I think he sees it as the kind of key to his having any chance of reforming anything in his second term. And if he lets go on that, he might as well just accept that he's a kind of caretaker president for the next four or five years and, and that he isn't able to push through his agenda. He's decided to go for it, to play hardball. I think the pension reform is justified. I think doing it now is maybe a, a mistake. John, just a, a final word on the mood in France as a whole. Would you describe it as tense, as, as taut at the moment? Yes, but it's kind of not all tense in one direction. That only really makes sense. But I think, you know, the, the people suggesting that this was the beginning of a kind of 1968 sort of revolt or, or a, you know, a big people's front to uh, insist on huge social changes and increase in wages. A lot of the anger out there is against the unions as much as for them, in the sense that a lot of motorists, especially in rural France, are furious at still being, although it's getting better, are still finding it very difficult to uh, to fill up their cars. And also the prices have gone really high up now. I was just out just now and the, the two petrol stations nearest to me here in Normandy, which had no petrol at all a couple of days ago, now do, and diesel, but it's two euros a litre, more or less, you know, and that's because France is having to import it more expensively from other countries, partly. So there is a lot of anger, but it's not all anger in one direction. Mm. I think one of the things that prevention reform will do is to consolidate that anger in one de- direction against Macron. 70% or more of French people say they're against pension reform, but only 30%, 37%, something like that, yesterday were in favour of the strikes. Thank you, John, for your input and wisdom this week. And moving on now, each week on Talking France, we like to move around the country and pick a few places in the news. Now, France is famous, obviously, for its cuisine, which means food makes the news in France quite often. This week, we're going down to the mountainous region of central France, and in particular, the Auvergne to talk about another delicacy that's been in the news. Jen, what's been happening in Auvergne? So, yeah, so we're going to focus specifically on one cheese, the Laguiole cheese. And we're focusing on that because it's very important to the people of Auvergne, so much so that there's a yearly festival around it. And the most interesting part of this festival is that there's a competition to see who can stretch Aligo the furthest. So Aligo is not a cheese itself, but it uses the Laguiole cheese from the Auvergne region to make it. Um, and it's actually a blend of mashed potatoes with buttercream, cut, crushed garlic, and it's super stretchy, like really, really stretchy. And this past year, an older man, 88 years old, by the name of Jeanneau Miquel, uh, made it his mission to beat the world record for the longest stretching of Aligo. And so he climbed up on this lift and used a giant spatula to pull the aligo six meters into the air. 
but it was a bit sad because unfortunately, Jeanette Miquel did not achieve his goal. He didn't beat the world record of 6.2 meters, uh, which was actually achieved in 2020 by a pair of brothers who managed to stretch the Adigo almost to the top of their house. And it's a pretty wild video. You can actually find it on YouTube. Mm, anyone who's had Aligo will of course know how stretchy it is. It's normally had with sausage, uh, maybe a Toulouse sausage. Now, there's also been a world record breaking sausage or sausage related event in France recently. Is that right, Jed? Yes. So it's not necessarily sausage specifically, it's actually galette saucisse. And this world record was broken in May. And you can probably guess where it was broken in Brittany, seeing as this is a Breton delicacy. Some people even call galette saucisse the Breton hot dog. And it was actually broken by a soccer or football team in ile et vilaine And basically what they did is they built this giant galette saucisse out of 550 galettes and 170 sausages, and they made it 72 meters long. So the previous record was only 54. So they, they beat it by a long shot. Um, wow. And these aren't the only wacky food, French food competitions. If you go to the Fête de Bayonne, there's a yearly spicy omelet competition. Or if you're more into competitions that happen around food, you could take part in the, the Marathon du Médoc, which is a marathon that goes through a vineyard every year in September in Gironde. And uh, some people actually call this the longest marathon in the world, but it's not actually because the marathon itself is longer than other one. It's actually because it takes runners a lot more time to get through because there are over over 20 relay stands and at each of them you can have wine ice cream even oysters uh, as you're attempting to complete the marathon yes indeed we've got a great article on the local france's website uh, with some cracking videos of marathon runners stopping for a glass of rouge on their way to complete the marathon de medoc fantastic thanks jen and who's been in the news in France this week? We've picked out KB9, otherwise known as Karim Benzema, the French footballer who's just won the Ballon d'Or, which basically means he's the best footballer in the world this year. But there's more to Benzema than just smacking balls into the net. He's a kind of controversial figure in France, or he has been over the years. Emma, tell us more about Karim Benzema. Yeah, well, everybody loves him right now, obviously. Since he's won the Ballon d'Or, everyone's been tripping over themselves to say how brilliant he is. But he's actually been the target of quite a lot of controversy and even hatred during his career. Now, some of this, I think it's fair to say, is of his own making, um, particularly particularly what's known in France as l'affaire du sex tape, just Google it. But some of this is to do with his status as a prominent French Algerian. Benzema was born in Lyon, he grew up in Lyon, and his first club was Olympique Lyonnais. But his parents are Algerian, which means obviously he qualifies to play for either France or Algeria. And in 2006, he made some fairly innocuous comments, really, that he felt partly French and partly Algerian, but he'd chosen to play for France and he was proud to do so. And I think it's fair to say he's been pretty successful as part of the, the French team. But these comments were immediately seized on by the far right, who accused him of being what they call a paper Frenchman. And it was part of a sort of wider attempt by the far right to stir up fears and resentment of French people from immigrant backgrounds, who they kind of assume accused of not being properly French, not sharing French values. And in France, in fact, France's pretty successful football team has often become a bit of a, a political football, if you'll pardon the phrase. The team which won the World Cup back in 1998 was notably a, a very multi-ethnic team. And they were mocked by Jean-Marie Le Pen, the far-right leader, for being artificial Frenchmen. Not real, because they weren't white, basically. Fast forward to 2021, last year, just ahead of the Euros, 
and Le Pen's daughter Marine was also attacking another multi-ethnic French team. This time her target was specifically Benzema, partly over those 2006 comments, partly over the sex tape thing. And also she was attacking the team anthem, which was a rap track, and it was intended to celebrate the diversity of the team for representing the whole of France, from the, the countryside to the inner cities. So as we can see in France, even the fairly simple act of kicking a ball about is complicated and political. Indeed, yeah, it really is a, a, an amazing remontada from Benzema. Remontada is like a comeback. He was out in the cold a few years ago because of his involvement in this sex tape scandal that you mentioned. Yeah, I always feel France is like, it loves to build its footballers up and then, you know, anytime they step out of line or don't do something that they're expected to do, they get, you know, really targeted. I mean, I think, you know, whenever ever the French team sings the national anthem, all eyes are on Benzema, you know, especially the far right anyway, to see whether his lips are moving and whether he's singing or not. And if he isn't, then they're straight, they're on his back straight away. It's a cracking story. Now, moving on to a question from a reader. The blaze at Notre Dame Cathedral on April the 15th, 2019, almost destroyed the famous Paris landmark whilst the world watched on. But firefighters managed to save it and the French president, Emmanuel Macron, vowed it would be completely rebuilt. Originally, he announced it would be completed by 2024 in time for the Paris Olympic Games. Even at that time, many experts in reconstruction believe this deadline might have been a bit too ambitious. But the French government are still insisting Notre Dame will be restored by 2024, which brings us on to the question from our readers. What's the progress at Notre Dame? Jen, bring us up to date. Why does this take such a long time to bring Notre Dame back to life? Well, to understand why it's taking so long, we need to understand the scope of the work that's being done. So the fire that we all remember, it caused at least 15% of the building's vaults to be damaged or to collapse. And this meant that 24 of the chapels for the monument needed to be secured and restored. And then that's not all. The great organ also needed to be restored. And so did the roof and the same for the spire. So there was a lot of work generally that needed to be done. And when the fire happened, the spire itself was covered in scaffolding um, and this twisted and melted in the flames. And that had to be painstakingly removed piece by piece in order to have access to the roof. And then they had to protect the entire cathedral from the elements. So they created a sort of umbrella to, to protect it in case of rain and, and other uh, natural elements. And this first phase of the work, stripping the off the old scaffolding and making the building safe, was completed in the summer of 2021. And then after this was finished, it was only then that workers could move on to the actual restoration process for the cathedral, specifically for the frame and the spire. And these are actually going to be built with 1,000 oak trees that were specifically chosen from across France. And that's the process or the part that we're at right now. And it's still going to take some time because these trees need to be transformed into the frame and the spire that they will eventually create. So we're hoping that as of April, the spire will be visible again. As of April 2023 and the 2024 deadline is still on. The government is still sticking with this, yes? Yes, they are. The goal is still to have it ready for the Paris Olympics, even though actually the head of the construction project himself did say that this is a bit ambitious, um, right. but he's working his best. They're all trying their best to have that ready. Interesting. We will keep a close eye on developments down at Notre Dame. It's still a huge tourist attraction if you pass through the centre of Paris. The crowds still gather around to keep an eye themselves on the progress that's being made. Thanks, Jen. 
The fuel shortages in France have caused real misery for motorists who rely on their vehicles to earn a living. But it's also highlighted once again France's dependence on cars, in particular traditional petrol and diesel vehicles. It's fine for those of us who live in Paris to be without a vehicle, but in rural France, as our listeners will attest to, it's a different story. The car is vital. But President Macron has a new plan to try to wean people off petrol cars. Will it work? And what about public transport? Is it that bad? Emma, before we hear about whether the French government has plans to put on more local buses and regional trains, tell us about Macron's new plan to get drivers to go green. Yeah, he announced an increase in the grants available to buy an electric car in France. You can now get up to €7,000, depending on your income, to trade in your combustion engine car for an electric one. And this is just the latest in a, a series of sort of inducements to drivers to go electric. And interestingly, it also comes in parallel with Macron setting another target, and this is for France to have produced 2 million electric electric cars by 2030. So he's really setting out France's stall to become like the major European manufacturer of electric cars as well as the consumer of them. Yeah, it sounds like he wants to encourage French people to buy French-made electric cars. But why is the French government so keen on these electric cars? Well, obviously, they have environmental benefits that will help France meet its climate goals. But I think it's really the fact that France as a nation is highly dependent on the car. 86% of French households have a car and one third of them use their car every day. And the main reason for that is that once you're out of the big cities, public transport can be pretty poor. The French TGV network, as we've talked about before, is great. I'm getting a train to Marseille next week. I'll be travelling 775 kilometres in three hours and two minutes. But once you get off the intercity connections onto the local services, is what's known as the TER, things are less good and the trains there are often slow, infrequent, overcrowded. I was looking at a report from 2019 which showed that travelling by public transport in rural France takes an average of five times longer than going by car. So it's really not an inducement. The authors of this report, they randomly selected 120 routes and they found that all of them required at least 25 minutes of walking in addition to the train or the bus. On top of that, there was an average of just 2.6 services per day for the routes selected and the routes covered only around five hours of the day. So that's clearly impossible for commuters, for example. So all of this means that in a lot of places, having a car is essential for everyday life. And that does make motorists quite a strong political force in their own right in France. You'll remember, of course, that the Yellow Vest movement started as a protest over fuel taxes. Yeah, indeed. And many of our readers who live in rural France and listeners as well who live or visit rural France will know exactly what we're talking about. You really do need a car once you get out into the sticks in the French countryside. Reacting to that report you mentioned there, Emma, the mayor of a village of Ferret in Normandy summed up the problem. He said, We have no option of public transport to the nearest town, Fougères, which is located less than 20 kilometres from my village, said Louis Potrel, the name of the mayor. As for the best connected rail station in Rennes, it's 67 kilometres away. There's a bus to get there from Fougères, but it takes almost three times longer than the car. And basically, he urged the government to stop focusing public services and economic activities on major cities. We need a territorial rebalancing with policies in favour of the most isolated areas. I mean, you know, we live in Paris, there's three metro stops within about 200 metres from where I live, you know, public transport. We're really spoiled for choice. But just to put it into contrast, this is a message from a reader, Dina Junkerman, who lives in Côte d'Amour in Brittany. She said, having to drive everywhere is the worst thing, there being no public transport within a half an hour drive, except for one 
community bus on market day once a week, which is wonderful, but has no flexibility at all. Living in a small rural village, it's difficult to go out for dinner. You can't have a drink if you have to drive home and there's no alternative to driving. We've both had to go to the hospital since living here. It's a good 40 minute drive to the nearest one, which is a pain for daily visiting and follow-ups. I worry about how we will cope when we're too old to drive or if one of us becomes seriously ill. I think a lot of readers will recognize those sentiments. It really is a complete contrast between cities and rural France. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also, I mean, we sort of see this in the political landscape that a lot of rural France feels like quite forgotten by, you know, the politicians. Politics in France is heavily centred in Paris. And sometimes you get politicians who just seem to be saying, oh, well, you know, just take the metro, get on your bike. And, you know, that's great in the city, but it's just completely impractical in rural France. And like you mentioned, this is one of the grievances of the Yellow Vest protests, and it's been a long standing grievance in France. But is the government trying to do anything to improve public transport in these places? There are some plans to improve the rural train network, but really a lot of this is just either saving lines from closure or doing repairs on long neglected lines. So it's really just sort of getting things back to what they were before. It's not really adding new lines. We've talked previously on this podcast about making cycling more popular and, you know, that can work in small towns, but it's not really practical for people in rural areas, especially the elderly. You know, you can't expect people to cycle 20 kilometres every day if you're not in peak physical condition. So it does seem like a reality that France is likely to remain dependent on the car. But if that car is petrol or diesel powered, it also means that you're dependent on oil shipped in from other countries. And one of Macron's big ideas for France, in fact for the EU as a whole, is energy sovereignty, making countries more independent by controlling their own fuel supplies. And this, I think, is one of the the main drives behind the electric car. Having electric cars clearly would mean no more dependence on oil. And also, we've talked earlier on this podcast about the sort of widespread fuel shortages we're seeing at filling stations around the country. Now, these blockades only actually involve a couple of hundred people and the dispute is about pay increases for workers who are already pretty comfortably off. Their strike action really has very little popular support around the country but still, these few hundred people have succeeded in bringing large parts of the country pretty much to a halt just by making people unable to fill up their cars. So I suspect a future where that couldn't happen would also be pretty attractive to any French government. And there's no one better to talk about this issue than John Litchfield, our politics expert. John, you have an electric car where you are in Normandy. Is it feasible? Can we? Can you get by with an electric car it's in rural France at the moment? Well, it depends what you want to do with it, Ben. I mean, yes, if you just want it to go to the shops to go to work, if it's not a long distance, if you just want it to sort of travel around short distances locally, it's very, very good, you know, very cheap, and you can charge it up at home and very rarely have to charge it on a public bourne, as they call it, public charging point, which are often difficult to find and broken when you do find them. So, yes, as long as you're doing short distances, as long as you charge it at home, it can work very well. And I've had it now for three years, and actually going to replace it and switch it for another one tomorrow and lease on another uh, electric car because I've been so happy with it. But if you want to travel, as I've written about, if you want to travel across France, even if you want to drive in from here to Paris, which is about 160 miles, 260 kilometres away, it can be a bit of a nightmare. You know, you have to recharge the car, which can take a long time, necessarily find a place to to charge it. Paris, I found when I was there with the car, is a very difficult place to charge a car and very expensive when you do. So yes, for, for local short trips in rural France, probably the same in cities. For long distance going on holidays with the kids, not yet. Nowhere near. Yeah. I mean, look, do you think Macron's latest offer of several thousand euros to push people towards taking an electric car, do you think it's going to work? 
I mean, I benefited. It was six thousand euros when I when I took the my car three years ago. This is now seven thousand euros. It's going up to four people on on a certain level of income. It doesn't for everyone, but something like half households in France get the extra one thousand. It's partly, I think, to give a kind of a boost to the French car industry to to ensure that they're getting the orders that they need because it's a big big issue for for France in the next few years whether they can make this transition to electric cars. Something like twenty five percent of all the industrial strength in or base in France that remains is is to do with the car industry, and that's going to be turned on its head. We're told in the next ten to fifteen years by this movement away from petrol and diesel cars to electric cars. So there are reasons for him doing that other than helping poorer rural French people. I, I think, yes, it, it is It is an advantage to some people. Uh, I think it will attract some people. But even with the €7,000 government handout, it can be quite expensive to buy anything other than a very small electric car. He's promised also to have some sort of deal by next year in which people are able to lease again, below a certain level of income, are able to lease a car for €100 Euros a month. Well, good luck with that. That's way below what the cars are being offered for at the moment. OK, so just moving away from cars, I mean, can you see the French government really investing in public transport in rural France in certain parts of the country to reduce the, the need for a car? Well, it is up to a point. And, you know, here where I am in Normandy, there's a, there's a bus that goes into Caen three or four times a day, which is not bad, you know, and I use it from time to time. But, you know, what level would you have to increase that bus service to to make it possible for people to commute to work? Finally, France has a deep and storied film culture. Indeed, hundreds of films are shot in Paris each year alone, and France produces more movies than any other country in Europe. If you want to understand French culture, there's nothing better than watching a French film. Now, while Netflix series Emily in Paris has its lovers and haters, we have a few films to recommend that give you a view of France beyond those wealthy boulevards of central Paris that tourists love. Jen, it's over to you to start us off. So one film that I watched this week is called Athena. It's meant to be a Greek tragedy set in the backdrop of a fictional cité or a social housing estate. Um, and it basically tells the stories of these three brothers who are attempting to cope with the loss of their youngest brother, who was killed by what may have either been a far right group or police. And stylistically, it's quite beautiful. It's mostly shot at night. So the colors that they chose really stand out a lot. It feels quite theatrical, but the movie itself has gotten a lot of criticism, especially for the way that it painted some of its characters. And I don't want to spoil anything, but it's definitely an interesting film. And it tries to give a glimpse into a part of French life that tourists or visitors might not be as aware of. Mm, and there are there is another one. There are others, plenty of films that look into this aspect of life that is beyond Emily in Paris, for example. You picked out another one this week. Yes. Uh, the other one that I'm talking about is Les Miserables. And this is Probably not the Lémis that you're familiar with, no Jean Valjean. So unlike Athena, this is partly based on a true story, although still fiction. It's the director's retelling of events that he witnessed in 2008, because he's actually from uh, the area that he filmed. But both of these films try to show the realities of life for French kids of color, particularly those of sub-Saharan and North African descent in estates and suburbs, uh, areas that are a bit less financed than other parts of France, um, mm. and as well as just the discrimination that they face in their day-to-day -day lives. Okay, just finally, how can listeners find these films, Jen? Uh, so they're available on different streaming services. For Atena, you can find it on Netflix, and for Les Miserables, it should be on Amazon Prime. Okay, thanks, Jen. Emma, Jen has given us a couple of good film recommendations there, but there is a classic 
that everyone should watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is Latin, the, the hatred. It's quite old. It's from 1995. And I think it was probably the first film that really properly shone a light on life in the Bollier in the deprived city areas of France. I rewatched this quite recently. And, you know, the tech and the cars look a little bit dated now. But other than that, it totally stands the test of time. And depressingly, the issues that it talks about are all still relevant today and nothing has been solved. It's often described as a film about police and gang violence and it's true that the the book ending event is the death of a young man in police custody and the riots that follow that but I think that makes it sound depressing and although it's certainly a very hard-hitting film it's also quite warm in the way it sort of deals with its three central characters and it's actually pretty funny in places as well so it's absolutely well deserved its status as a classic everyone should watch this La Haine yes indeed it's one film that if you come to France you really should watch and you've got a more recent one to recommend Emma yeah this is one that I saw in the cinema this summer it's called uh, Rodeo Rodeo and it takes a look at what they call um, La France Périphérique, or the, the in-betweeners. People who don't live in the city but don't live in the country either. They live in either the sort of outer suburbs of cities or the small towns. And in some of these places, a popular pastime is unlicensed motorbike racing and rallies. They're called uh, Rodeo Urbain, or sometimes Rodeo Sauvage, unlicensed. Yeah, they've been in the news quite a lot recently because there's been a, a couple of deaths, haven't there? Yeah, they're, they're pretty dangerous and politicians are always vowing to crack, crack down, down on yeah. them. Yeah. But the director of this film, she spent quite a lot of time getting to know these communities and she's produced this really beautiful film in which most of the characters are played by actual rodeo riders, not professional actors, so the stunts are absolutely amazing. And it tells the story of a a young girl biker who's trying to break into this very masculine, very macho world. And it's just a really interesting look at a community that you don't really see very often. I'll just uh, remind listeners where they can actually find these films. Well, La Haine is on Netflix. Rodeo is still in some French cinemas, I think, and the DVD is available to pre-order from FNAC. It'll probably fetch up on streaming soon, but French law is pretty strict on the gap between films being in the cinema and appearing on streaming services, so we might have to wait a bit for that. Okay, there you have it. Plenty to keep you busy this weekend. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode, and indeed to the end of this latest series of Talking France. But don't worry, we have a two-week break and we'll be back in in the week beginning November the 7th with a new series. Remember, if you have any feedback or suggestions, then email us at news at the local.fr. Our podcast is free, but it's only possible thanks to readers becoming members of The Local France. If you like what you're listening to, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to Talking France, or just recommend us to friends and family. Thanks to you all for listening. 